While those are going out, I want to talk to you for just a minute about what we're about to do and why we do what we do every week. If you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we're walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. And we actually started this series over a year ago. So we've taken over a year to walk through passage by passage of Mark's Gospel. And I just want to tell you real quickly, the reason why we do that is we believe in Spirit-led preaching of the Word of God. And you say, what are you talking about, man? That's not Spirit-led preaching. Spirit-led preaching is that random stuff that you don't study for, that just comes on in a moment. And we're convinced that much of what passes today as Spirit-led preaching is just a spiritualized version of pastors talking about their favorite topics in the Scriptures over and over and over. So we want to honor the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this church, and we want to preach the book that He wrote. He wrote a book. It's called The Word of God, the Scriptures. And so our charge as teachers in the flock is to feed you, the church, with the whole counsel of God. And so the meat and potatoes of what we go after on Sunday mornings is we go passage by passage through books of the Bible. This is what we've done in Mark. Today we've made our way to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now Ryan hit part one of this last week, and we're going to dig in to part two today. And I just want to talk to you for just a minute. Let's set this up in the context of the entire Bible before we dig into this passage. Ryan reminded us us of this last week. The crucifixion is literally the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. That means that the story of Jesus is glorious, but it reaches the climax as Christ hangs on His cross. It is literally the climax not only of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the climax of all of Scripture. Okay, This is what we're going to call the Mount Everest of God's revelation to humanity. The Mount Everest of what He's done. The highest of the highest. All right, And I want to help you grasp the centrality of the cross. Okay, And I want to remind you of just a couple of things out of the first book of the Bible. Genesis. All right? And we know that even in our modern day context, when somebody really important is about to do something, uh, make a speech, it's all over headline news that so-and-so is given a press conference at whatever time, and they tell you days, even weeks ahead of time, that this is going down, okay? And everybody draws their attention to these important events, and even... In the days of monarchs, you know, the king would come in and he would, he would be crowned with a, with a coronation ceremony. Hear ye, hear ye, rolling out the red carpet because the, the exalted one has entered the building. Does that make sense? God's Word does that about Jesus, except it does that about 6,000 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, at least 6,000 years before the crucifixion account... As early as Genesis chapter 3, we have God beginning to announce this Christ to come. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Not even three chapters in the Bible, we're told to expect this offspring of Eve, this coming one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Three chapters in the Bible, God begins to announce what He's going to do in Jesus. Genesis chapter 12. Just another, another piece of this story. God begins to announce this one coming from the line of Abraham is going to bless all the nations of the earth. Twelve chapters in the Bible, we know that the coming one is going to be a human, that he's going to be a Jew, that he's going to destroy Satan, and that he's going to bless every nation that has ever existed. Twelve chapters in. That's just biblical prophecy 
in the first book of the Bible. But also in the book of Genesis, Genesis points to Jesus with types and shadows. You can take some quick notes on this. We don't have time to to get into this much. But in Genesis chapter 22, God calls a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, go to the Mount of Moriah. Abraham is commanded by God to go to this mountain called Moriah. And he's commanded by God to sacrifice his only son on the mountain that God's going to show him. And you know how that story goes if you've ever read Genesis 22. The moment that Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, he's stopped by an angel. He's about to sacrifice the firstborn, the only one, to God. That is a clear picture of the cross to come. Do you see that? Clear picture that God, is, there's going to be a sacrifice of the firstborn, the only son, to God. But even digging in behind this story, I want you to, I want you to understand this. The Mount Moriah that that exchange happens at, if you go back and read Genesis 22, God names that place. And God gives Mount Moriah a name and He says, He names that place. He says, on this mount, on this mount of the Lord, it will be provided. 6,000 years before the crucifixion, God named a mount called Moriah. On this mount, the Lord will provide. Now, we don't have time to dig into all the details of this, and I'll be glad to walk you through this later, but if you fast forward through human history for 6,000 years, this Mount Moriah that's called on this mount of the Lord, it will be provided. That is the mountain that Christ was crucified on 6,000 years later. So for thousands of years, through the millennia, God announced what He was about to do in Jesus. This is the centrality of, the, of this event, even from the very first book of the Bible. So what we're about to unpack today is this eternal plan of God just breaking forward into fulfillment on the cross. This event, the cross of Jesus, is literally without rival in human history. It is the most important event to ever happen in all of eternity. It's been called the hinge, the pivot point on which redemptive history swings. And even sinful humanity altered the way they count time by this event. Before Christ and after Christ. It changes everything. This is the most important event that has ever happened. It's the core of the Gospel. What I mean by that, if you understand this, if you understand the cross of Christ, you understand the Gospel. It is the blazing center of the glory of God. It is the the sharpest way that God has willed to glorify Himself through the ages. It's the blazing center. This is what we were created for. To stand in God's presence and praise God for what He did for us on the cross. So this is a weighty, weighty event in the Word of God. It's the holiest ground in all of Scripture. And what that demands of us today, it demands of me, is that I speak to you very carefully in the next few moments. I don't want to speak wrongly about the cross. And what it demands of you As we stand on the holiest ground in all the Scripture, it demands that you listen to the Word of God very, very, very intently today. Okay? This is what this demands, this topic, this event. And when I say listen intently, I don't just mean for for knowledge's sake. Okay? This event is a call to worship, not a call just to learn facts about Jesus on His cross. So may none of us leave this place today with mere intellectual understanding of the cross. We need passion for Jesus crucified. We need to feel heat in our soul for our Savior hanging on His cross. 
The highest joys that we experience in life need to be towards Christ and Him crucified for us. The highest praise, the highest celebration, the highest zeal that we know in our, in our personality needs to be expressed towards Jesus on His cross. This is what we're going after. Okay? We, are, we are going after raising every ounce of our affections today to Jesus and Him crucified. We want to walk out of this place knowing nothing comparatively, knowing nothing before this world except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen? Amen. This is what we want to go after today. And that means that we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to exalt Christ in our minds, in our, in our understanding, in our affections. And surely you know... If you're honest enough, surely you know what it's like to feel more coldness and more boredom towards Jesus than you want to feel. Surely you know what it's like to sing songs like we just sung and just crying out on the inside, God, I want more love for You. I want more passion for You, Lord Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit in our life is to exalt the Savior as glorious to us. And so the good news for us is that the Holy Spirit is ready to help us today. So let's call on God. And all across this room, I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to pray for your neighbor. There are people in this room that need to be saved. Do you understand that? Okay? There are people in this room that need to be saved. There are saints in this room that need to be called out of sin, that need to be encouraged. Every one of us in this room could stand a new glimpse and a fresh glimpse of Christ in all His glory hanging on His cross. And so pray for yourself and pray for your neighbor. We need God's help during this time. So let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. God, we thank You for what You have done for us, Lord. God, we thank You that the majority of us us in this room, Lord, we stand as Your people, Lord, blood-bought by You. That we are Yours, Lord Jesus. And we come to You today, God, and we ask You to draw near to us during this time. We proclaim to You, Lord, that we are aware, God, that this time will fall to the ground in futility apart from Your Spirit's work in us, apart from Your help. So we ask, Lord, we ask for Your strong help, God. You tell us in Your Word that Your eyes, they search to and fro throughout the whole earth, God. And You're just waiting to show Yourself strong on on one whose heart is whole towards You, God. And I pray that for this whole church, God, that Your eyes would land on us and that we would lean against You, Lord. And ask for Your help and receive Your help to glory in Christ. God, we pray the prayer of Moses today that You would satisfy us, Lord, with Your steadfast love. That we would rejoice and be glad all our days, every day on this planet, that we would bless You, Lord, for what You've done for us. God, we ask You to save sinners in our midst, Lord. Show Yourself as the glorious Christ that You are, God. Help us to linger, Lord. Encourage our souls, God. Arrest, Lord, our attention. And God, we just ask, Lord, that you, would, that you would help our affections, Lord. Raise them to the, to, to the point to where they glorify you, God. God, produce white-hot zeal in us, passion in us, brokenness in us, Lord. All the appropriate affections as we consider you hanging on your cross for us, Lord Jesus. God, come help us today. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. And we're going to read our passage today. We're going to read verses 33 through 39 together. And we say this often, but I'll just say it again as a reminder. This is, these are the most important words you're going to hear in the next hour. These are the words straight from God. These are the words without error. These are the words full of holy power. 
This is all Scripture that is breathed out by God. And we're about to read about the death of God's Son. And so I encourage you. I just want to call on us to read this with holy reverence. Holy reverence. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Those few verses, just just packed in, in five verses, six verses, You just read about the most central event in in eternity, in all of history, the God-man dying on His cross. And I want you to think about, you think about this, that if you can nail down just a moment in your life where you could say, you know what, Dustin, for this moment right here, this hour, this is why I'm on the planet. Okay, Jesus tells us that this is the hour for which He was born. And what that means for us Literally, Jesus came into this world. Jesus was born to die on His cross for our sins. The church looks back on this day. Church history, you know what they call it? Good Friday. And that ought to boggle the mind if you thought about it long enough. And you say, why? Because a more appropriate name to this day on the surface should be Bloody Friday. Butchered Christ Friday. Okay? But the church looks back on this day and calls it Good Friday. And we've reminded you of this over and over. I just want to remind you again. The church of Jesus has always understood the necessity of getting up under the physical death of Jesus and understanding the spiritual meaning of the death of Christ. And you say, what do you mean? And I say, I mean this. You could... That day at Golgotha, you could have been standing 10 feet away from the Son of God, breathing His final breath, and had zero idea of what just happened in the natural man, in the natural eyes. You say, I don't believe that. There were, there, there were people there that it happened to. It's true. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to un- unpack Open our eyes to what happened on His cross. Something happens behind the scenes. There's a spiritual aspect behind the physical aspect of the death of Christ. And for this reason, the church looks back on this day and says, that's Good Friday. That's Glorious Friday. That's Grace of God Friday. That's when the grace of God was poured out on the church. This is what we're going to do today. We're going to get up under the physical and we're going to dig in behind the scenes. In these verses, 33 through 39, it is Mark's intention to show us why Jesus died. That's why we have the details that we have in this passage. So I want to go ahead and give you the outline that we're going to follow today. 
Mark highlights five events at Golgotha. Five events he gives us in these six verses. He begins by showing us two signs that precede the death of Jesus. Preliminary to the death of Jesus. The first is the darkness. And you see that in verse 33. That's a sign that precedes the death of Jesus. The second is what we're going to call the cry of dereliction. And you see that in verses 34 through 36. Both of these signs help us to understand what's going on behind the scenes. You have to see this. That's the first two events. Mark then gives us the third event in verse 37. This is the death of our Lord. When the moment, the holy moment, where the Christ of God breathes His last breath in this world, this is the main event in history. We're going to linger over that for a long time this morning. There's glory untold in the death of Christ. And then Mark gives us two immediate effects after the death of Jesus. Jesus dies and then He shows us immediately two things that Jesus' death does. And you see this? Number four is that the temple curtain is immediately torn. You see that in verse 38? And then the last thing He calls attention to at Golgotha, immediately, immediately upon the death of Jesus, this Roman centurion confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And you see that in verse 39. Now this is the outline we're going to follow today. Alright? I want to give you a thesis that we're going to unpack. And that just means a main theme that we're going to walk through through this whole passage. And I've been thinking about this, this passage for almost a month now. And I've been, just the Holy Spirit is coming back to this over and over and over. I've been seeing this. The main thing through this passage that's sticking out to me over and over and over again is that Jesus on His cross dies a curse bearing death. I want you to carry that phrase with you, okay? You might have never heard this before. You might have never thought about it like this, that on the cross, Jesus dies under the curse of God. This is the theme that we're going to unpack. Galatians 3 verse 13 explains this better than I can. Listen to it. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 just told us that Jesus died a curse-bearing death on the tree. This is actually even rooted in the Old Testament. Let me read one more verse to you. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23 says this, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. And then it says this, a hanged man is cursed by God. This is the main thing that the Holy Spirit through Mark would have you to understand today, that Jesus was cursed by God on His cross. He died a curse-bearing death. So we're going to walk through today. The curse of God that is meant to fall on sinners falls on Jesus instead. And I want us to start by looking at these two signs that precede the death of Jesus. Both of these signs point to the exact same thing. The darkness and the cry. They both point to the curse of God falling on the Son of God. We're going to unpack that. Listen to verse 33 one more time. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. All right. So we're jumping in, we're parachuting in, 
part two. Ryan covered part one last week. At this point, most likely, Jesus has been hanging on His cross for several hours. Most likely three hours at this point. Three hours into the crucifixion, as Jesus is hanging on His cross, the Word of God tells us that a sudden darkness descends at the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour is noon. Okay, The time of day that the sun would shine at its brightest, at its fullest strength, at noon, all of a sudden darkness descends on Golgotha. And it lasts for three hours. For three hours. When Jesus was born, think about this. When Jesus was born, the night that He was born, the glory of God, the blazing glory of God lights up a midnight sky and angels begin to sing the praise of the Savior. That was His entrance into the world. And then the moment that Jesus is about to die, darkness descends at noon. And what you see is that His entrance into the world and His exit from the world is marked by signs from God. The heavens are telling us something about Jesus. They're signs. From God. Now I want this to be clear to you. This is not a natural event. Many, many liberal Bible scholars, that means people that study the Bible that don't believe the Bible, okay? They try to explain away this event as a natural event. They say, oh, isn't this a coincidence? The moment that Jesus of Nazareth, that human, that good human teacher dies on his cross, a solar eclipse happens. Isn't that a coincidence? And this is not a solar eclipse. This this anti-supernatural logic, it will not work. A solar eclipse lasts for a few moments. This darkness lasts for three hours in Jerusalem. Okay. And additionally, we know that this happened on the backside of the Passover. We're now standing in the middle of what the Word of God calls the Feast of Unleavened Bread. At this time, there's a full moon. Okay. No such thing as a solar eclipse during a full moon. And what that means is that this is a supernatural event. This is a sign from God. It's a sign from God, this darkness. I want to give you just a few extra biblical references, sources, throughout history that write about this darkness. Listen to this. There's a guy named Phlegian. He was a pagan historian writing from Greece. Now remember, Jesus dies in Jerusalem. That's in Israel. This guy, this pagan, unbelieving historian is writing from Greece over the corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Listen to what he says. Pagan historian. Open quote. In the year 33 AD, it became night at the sixth hour of the day so that the stars appeared in the heavens. And also there was a great earthquake. That's a pagan historian bearing witness to the biblical record. And think about this. That pagan historian is recording this from, from Greece. Okay? Several hundred miles away, this darkness descends. And this earthquake is felt. Listen to this. This is a guy named Tertullian. Okay? He's a first century church father. Second century church father. He's a defender of the faith. In the second century, he writes a defense of Christianity to these unbelieving Roman scholars. Listen to what he says about the darkness. Open quote. At the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun and the land was darkened at noonday. Then he looks at these unbelievers and he says, This wonder is recorded in your own record books. And it is preserved in your archives even to this day. 
And so Tertullian looks at these unbelievers and he says, what are you going to do about the darkness that descended on the Roman Empire the moment that Jesus died? Go to the library and read about it. It's in your own record books. Do you see this? So I want to draw us into this extra biblical evidence. It just hammers this point home more and more that this darkness that engulfs the Savior is a real historical event. It's a real historical event. Alright? So I want you to imagine being there. I want you to imagine beholding Jesus on His cross. And then all of a sudden, at noon, in the brightness of the Middle Eastern sun, the lights go out for as far as you can see. No modern day electricity to counterbalance this. It's dark in all the land. As far as you can see, almost every depiction of the crucifixion that you see, some painting, some illustration, it's not dark. It's dark when Jesus hangs on His cross under the wrath of God. Okay? And the question that we're left with is this. What does this mean? Why is it dark for as far as we can see? What does the darkness mean? Why is Jesus hanging in the darkness on His cross? And we want to know the story of our Savior well. We want to know Him well. We want to know His story well. So here's what we're supposed to understand. Okay, This light-darkness theme in the Word of God in the Scriptures, it stands for the blessing and the judgment of God. Light-darkness theme stands for the blessing and the judgment of God. I want to give you an example of this in Isaiah 8. Listen to Isaiah 8.14. Isaiah 8.17, sorry. Isaiah 8.17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. And then I want you to jump to verse 22. Listen to this. God's hiding His face. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So according to the Word of God, when God turns His face away from a person or from the people... This is a sign of losing God's favor and falling under God's judgment. And Isaiah calls that thick darkness. Do you understand this? It's a symbol for the judgment of God. The darkness at the cross represents God's judgment. That's what we're supposed to understand. The lights go out and we're supposed to see God is judging somebody. And I want, to, I want to draw us into this. God is present at Golgotha. He's not absent. He is present at the cross. And He's present in judgment. And I want to take this one step further. Okay, One step further than just God is present in judgment. This darkness imagery is often associated with what Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord. You ever read that phrase before? Reading through the Old Testament? The day of the Lord. Here's an example. Amos chapter 5, verse 20. Listen to this. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? See that? And then we jump to Amos 8, verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That's the day of the Lord. And what we're supposed to know about the day of the Lord, this is the day that... This is, this is the day of the final judgment of God. The day of the Lord is the day of the final judgment where God the righteous judge fully and finally punishes sin. That's the day of the Lord. The, the, the righteous wrath of God poured out where He makes all things just and all things right. The day of the Lord is the day where He fully 
and finally punishes sin. And here's what I want you to see. The same darkness that will descend at the final judgment descends on the Savior on His cross. And you say, why? Because this is the only other day in history where God is fully and finally punishing sin. This is what the darkness means. It means judgment. It means final judgment. It means the fullness of judgment. This is the picture that we're supposed to understand of this darkness. And I want to give you a powerful Old Testament connection. I was, I was blown away at the Word of God. The sovereignty of God in His Word as I studied through this. Powerful Old Testament connection. I want to remind you that Jesus dies in the middle of Passover and unleavened bread. Feast of unleavened bread. That's, that's what's going down in Jerusalem at this moment that Jesus is hanging on His cross. And if you know the story of the Passover well, you know that back in Exodus, the early chapters, ten plagues of judgment were unleashed on Pharaoh and on Egypt right before God's people walk out of, of Egypt in the Exodus. The ten plagues of judgment. I want to remind you about the ninth plague that falls on Egypt. Ninth plague of judgment that fell on Egypt was a darkness that fell on the land for three days. Three days. According to Exodus chapter 10, this darkness was, was so thick, so pitch black that it could be felt. It was a darkness that could be felt. And I just want to ask you this. Three days, a darkness that could be felt falling on the land. Does that sound familiar to anybody in the middle of this Passover? And this is the picture that we get. This three days of darkness that fell on Egypt corresponds to the three hours of darkness that fall on Jesus. And then listen closely. Listen closely. The ninth plague of judgment announces the tenth plague that falls on Egypt. And the tenth plague was this, that the firstborn in the land is going to die. God is about to strike down the firstborn in the land. This was the final plague that fell on Egypt. And I just want to ask you this. Does that sound familiar to you? That the death of the firstborn is about to come. And what this means here is our passage today, we are, we are looking at and beholding the true Passover. The first was a practice run. It was a shadow. This darkness falls on the Savior and it's announcing the firstborn is about to die and the true exodus from sin is about to happen. That's the picture here. It's what the darkness is meant to tell us. True exodus is about to be accomplished. And this means... You need, to, you need to come against whatever Sunday school version of the cross that you heard. This means that God Himself, God the Father, is present at Golgotha. He's the true Abraham with the knife in His hand. And He's raising it up and He's about to strike the firstborn. And the angel's not going to stop Him this time. And you say, what do you mean? Are you saying that God the Father kills God the Son on the cross? And I'm saying that's exactly what the darkness means. And you have to understand this. That the deepest blow that strikes Jesus is not the Romans, it's not the Jews, it is God the Father. Mockers in our generation say that's divine child abuse. And this is the glorious gospel of Jesus. If you don't understand this, you have no chance of understanding the gospel. God the Father kills God the Son on the cross. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 10. Isaiah 53 verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was the will of God to Father to crush the Son. You need to understand this. 
Just like Jesus suffered under the highest penalty of Roman law, crucifixion, Jesus will now suffer under the highest penalty of God's law, the curse of God. That's how God is going to strike the Son. He is going to curse Jesus on His cross. This is the fullness of God's terrible fury, His blazing holiness, His hatred of sin. The fullness of it is about to fall on Jesus in the form of a curse as Jesus hangs on His cross. This is what the darkness means. In this darkness, I want you to see this. Limitless wrath is poured out on Jesus. Limitless. There's no end to it. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Limitless wrath is poured out on Jesus. The just judgment for our sin. And what I want to draw us into is at this moment, the great exchange is happening. During these three hours on the cross, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus is happening. This is when it's happening. In these three hours, Jesus is bearing our sin and becoming sin for us during these three hours of darkness on the cross. And I just want to bathe us for a minute in, in, in the Word of God. I'm going to read Scripture over you. And this is, this is how the biblical writers describe what happened during this time. And what we need to pray. Pray during this time. Holy Spirit, encourage us. Let us see Christ in His glory. This is what happens in the darkness. Listen to the Word of God. Isaiah 53, verse 6, tells us that at this moment, God the Father takes the iniquity of us all and lays them on God the Son. And during these three hours, Jesus becomes our sin bearer on His cross. Our sins are placed on the Holy One. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that during these three hours on the cross, Jesus is made to be sin for us. The One who knew no sin is made to be sin for us. This is happening during these three hours on the cross. So you're there... And, and you're visualizing what, what's happening to Jesus and you see the lights go out. This is exactly what's happening to the Savior. Our sins are being placed on Him. He is becoming sin. And God is beginning to curse Jesus in our place. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that at this moment, Jesus is bearing our sins in His body on the tree. This is what's happening in the darkness. Colossians 2.14 tells us that at this moment, Jesus nails the record of our debt to His cross, to His bloody cross. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 tells us that at this moment, Christ is becoming a sacrifice for sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 tells us that in this darkness, in this three hours, Jesus is being made a bloody payment to the Father for our sin, a propitiation to God. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 tells us that at this moment, Jesus is giving His life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that at this moment, Christ is suffering for us one time forever. Three hours on the cross in the darkness. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 and 10 tells us that at this moment, Jesus is dying for the weak for the ungodly, for sinners, and for enemies of God. And that's good news for every one of us in this room. That's happening during these three hours on the cross. Galatians 2.20 tells us that during these three hours, Jesus is loving us and giving Himself as a sacrifice for us. Galatians 2.20, Philippians chapter 2, 
verse 8 tells us that during these three hours on the cross, Jesus is becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's happening right now. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us, I want you to see this. Isaiah 53 5 tells us that at this moment, Jesus is crushed for our iniquities. I want you to just get the picture there. What does it mean to crush something? To pick up your foot and smash it till there's nothing left. Jesus is crushed for our iniquities during these three hours. Galatians 3.13 tells us that at this moment, Jesus is dying on the cross under God's curse that was meant for us. Curse-bearing death of Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that at this moment, Jesus is washing us, washing us from our sins in His own blood on His cross. And as we peek into this holy moment, none like it, no rival moment to Jesus on His cross, I just want to put John 1.29 in your ears. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's going down in the darkness in these three hours on the cross. Hallelujah to His name. The glorious Christ, our wrath bearer on His cross. Taking our curse, taking our punishment in our place. And I just want to highlight this. It is very popular today to talk about the gospel, and that's a catchphrase in, in, our, uh, in our culture. And even missionaries go to the other side of the world and they preach the gospel. And what flies for the gospel in our day is that Jesus came and, and you've been such a victim and you've been so hurt by sin and, and, and all this pain and all this emotional pain in your life. And Jesus died so that you would know purpose. And Jesus died that you would know healing. And I just have news for you. That's a gospel distortion, number one. You never see the gospel preached like that in the New Testament. And number two, every person in this room, you have an infinitely greater problem than having no purpose in this world or some kind of victim of sin in this world. You have the curse of God that abides on you, the wrath, the eternal wrath of God. That is the gospel that is preached in the New Testament. This is what Jesus is bearing on His cross. The curse-bearing death of Jesus. It saved sinners for 2,000 years. We don't need to modify it. It's the glory of Christ. This darkness completely engulfs Jesus. It engulfs our Savior completely consumed by the curse of God. The punishment and the agony that Jesus is enduring, it is beyond words to describe to you of what He's suffering on His cross during these three hours. Jude 13 calls it the gloom of outer darkness. Jesus Himself referred to this place of limitless agony he referred to it as the outer darkness. And what this means is that this is what Jesus is experiencing for us. He is being plunged into the outer darkness. He is being plunged into the limitless agony for us. Mark tells us that this agony is so terrible that it causes Jesus to cry out in agony. Listen to verses 34 through 36. At the ninth hour, Jesus, <coughs> Jesus, <coughs> sorry, Mark, 30, Mark 34 through 36. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which means, My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This cry in church history has become known as the cry of dereliction. And that means literally the the cry of agony, the cry of desertion, the cry of abandonment by Jesus. And what this means is this cry voices the same thing that the darkness pictures, that the curse of God is falling on the Son of God. Mark is hammering this theme home. Jesus is dying a curse-bearing death. Jesus is dying a curse-bearing death. I want to warn you to be very careful about wrong interpretations to this phrase, to this, to this cry of dereliction. There are many ways that sinful man has distorted and downplayed Jesus' suffering in these words. And the first is this. God is not turning His face away from the Son because He cannot bear to watch the Son suffer at the hand of the Romans. That is a distortion. That is a lie. The hand that is striking Christ is the Father. This is, this is an over-romanticization. This is an appeal to sinful emotion. This is not what's happening in this verse. And I want also to caution you to be careful not to say, be careful not to say that Jesus is not experiencing a real separation from the Father. Some say that the only reason that Jesus says this phrase is to draw our attention to Psalm 22. And, and what that means is that before we had chapters and verses, the way that you reference passages of the Bible is that you quote the first line. Okay? And some say that's the only thing we're supposed to take away from this phrase. God would never forsake the Son. He's just calling us to think about Psalm 22. And I say yes and amen. Jesus is calling us to think about Psalm 22. But no thank you. Never going to happen to distort the suffering of the Savior like this. Jesus is quoting these words because these words accurately describe what the Savior is feeling. His separation, His forsakenness by God, it's a reality. Be careful of this. Some say this, that the Father could never separate Himself from the Son because the Father is always present. Again, amen. The Father is all-present. He is the all-present God. Even in hell. Your culture thinks that Satan rules hell. But God, Satan is in hell with all the wicked. Okay? God is the one that's present in hell in judgment. God is all, He's all-present. There's nowhere in all of His creation that He is not present. Amen to that. But that kind of language, it downplays this it downplays that there are multiple places in Scripture that God's judgment is described in terms of separation. Okay, That's what's going down here. There is a real separation and it means judgment. And it means judgment. Be careful of this human logic that says this. You know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're a trinity, they're a perfect unity, and they can never be separated from one another. And again... I want to caution you of trying to explain away the mystery of this moment with human logic. What happens here is completely unique in all of eternity. Think of a billion years times a billion years. This only happens once for three hours. This is a unique moment, full of mystery, but it's real. 
So I want to caution you, be careful not to downplay the suffering and the forsakenness of Jesus during these three hours. God the Father and God the Son were separated. They're separated. And this should blow the finite human mind. This is not a call for theological speculation. This is a call for us to put our face in the dirt and worship God of God. Look what you've done. Look how low you stooped. Jesus, you had eternal communion with the Father. And you bear our curse and you bear our wrath and you experience a separation that sin demanded. You say, what do you mean? Isaiah 59 verse 2 says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Jesus experienced that for you. Don't downplay that. With finite human logic. That's unbelief. Notice that Jesus is conscious of two things in this cry. He's conscious that God is His God. My God. My God. Do you see that? He's conscious that God is His God. And what that means is that Jesus is about to die and He's going to die in faith. He's not going to die in unbelief. God is going to be His God till His parting breath. This is the sinlessness of Christ. This points us into this holy moment that He dies sinless and our sins are placed on Him. He is conscious that God is His God. And at the same time, He's conscious of this, that His God is forsaking Him. And you see this in the phrase, Why have you forsaken me? He is conscious of a real separation between Him and the Father. What is this? This is the curse of God falling on the Son of God. The separation. He's experiencing the full alienation from God that our sins demanded. As God begins to treat Jesus like the sin He is bearing, I want you to try to visualize this. Okay, Try to see Jesus being completely cut off from the Father. Try to get a glimpse of this indescribable agony that made the Son of God cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? This is what's happening in this moment. Unthinkable agony and unthinkable punishment. And I want you, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to see this. I want to encourage you in this moment. Literally, Jesus is taking your hell on this cross. He's taking all of your punishment and all of God's curse for you. Plunged into the outer darkness. and He is experiencing unfathomable, unfathomable spiritual anguish of soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying that for you. And what would it look like for the Holy Spirit to just pierce your soul with that phrase that you feel it in your bones that Jesus was forsaken by God for me? It'd do at least three things. It'd do at least three things that remind you of the wickedness of your sin, that your sin put Him there. He is there under the curse because you are rebellious against God. And there's no such thing in all of creation as a little sinner. We are rebels. We are ungodly. You say, what do you mean? I've never killed anybody. The greatest sin in the Word of God is to disobey the greatest commandment. And that is to love God with everything that you have. And you have broken the greatest commandment thousands of times in your life. You're not a little sinner. You are a massive sinner. And this is a reminder that your massive sin debt put Him under the curse. And it's also a reminder of this. This is the love of God. The grace of God towards you. He's bearing the curse for you. He should have walked away from you. He could have walked away from you. 
You're the enemy, the rebel of God, and He is dying under the curse. Limitless, unspeakable anguish is what the Savior tasted for us. What would it look like for us to grab a hold of that? How much would we love Him if we could just taste just a, just a little bit of that? How much would we love Christ? And then the third thing I want to remind you of is there are, there are times where we can walk in doubt Is this gospel powerful enough? Is what Jesus has done sufficient enough? Am I really saved? And Romans chapter 8 verse 1 reminds us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm just telling you this. If you could get a glimpse of Jesus screaming out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you could just taste that in your bones, if you could feel it, then you would know that Jesus was cut off from the Father for you. And there was no more punishment left for you to bear. You know that in your soul. And I want to remind you of this. When you walk in unbelief, when you walk in condemnation as a believer, you dishonor Christ. You dishonor the separation that He experiences. Just the taste of this would kill that in your life. Forsaken by God. Cut off from God. Now I want to say this to everyone here that's not a Christian, and I want to be very careful to define this, I do not mean a cultural Christian. I mean a biblical one. A real disciple of Jesus. One that has repented of their sins and put your trust in Christ. Okay? If you're here today and that's not you, then I want to show you something from this passage. This suffering, this indescribable anguish that Jesus is experiencing is a picture of of what you can certainly expect in hell. This is a picture of the judgment of God on sin. Full, final. Except, one, one except, yours won't be over in three hours. The Bible teaches that God will punish the wicked forever and the smoke of their torment will never cease to rise. Yes, it really says that. There is eternal wrath that God the righteous judge has promised to punish All sinners. God, in Ezekiel 18, He says, Behold, all souls are mine. All souls belong to God. And then He says this, The soul who sins will die. The soul who sins will die. The God that owns you has promised all sinners that you will die forever in hell. This is the anguish that you can expect. But here we have Jesus. And He's cut off from God. And He's experiencing the full separation. And the good news for you is this. That because Jesus is on His cross and He's experiencing the curse, the righteous wrath of God being cut off from the Father, you never have to experience wrath from God. You never have to experience this. Jesus offers forgiveness of sin to every sinner that repents of their sin. If you've never done that, you're going to hell. Let that be so clear to you. If you've never repented from sin, you are headed to eternal judgment. Jesus offers eternal life and forgiveness to every sinner who repents of their sins and puts their trust in Christ. This is the good news of the Gospel. The Christ screamed out in agony on His cross. This Christ deserves to be trusted. He deserves your allegiance. He has paid the price for the sins of all who will ever trust Him. And this offer is wide open. There's no partiality in this offer. He's tasting death for every sinner that will repent and trust Him. So I want you to be warned from this passage. This is certain. 
This is a picture. The most vivid picture we have in the Word of God of hell is the suffering that fell on Jesus on His cross. Then think about this. If a perfect man were to die for your sins, he would still be suffering today. He would still be suffering today because your sins demanded an eternal punishment. Infinite, limitless wrath. But Jesus is more than a man. He is the infinite God-man. And He is the only one qualified to die in our place, to die for our sins. This infinite God-man is the only one that can bear eternal wrath in three hours. That's a finite span of time. You say, how could He do that? And we say, because He's the God-man. He's God and He's man. He swallows infinite wrath because He's the infinite God. And He dies on the cross because He's Jesus Christ the man. He's the God-man. Just take it a step further than that. Jesus, in these three hours, He is bearing the hell of millions upon millions that will be saved. He is bearing millions upon millions of eternal punishment. And the cynic in us rises up and says, how can one man die for billions and billions? And even that question shows you our tendency to devalue the one that hangs on His cross. This is the God-man. This is the God-man. His sacrifice is more valuable than every human being, than all of creation itself. He's the God-man dying on His cross. Some of those nearby the cross, Jesus cries out and they misunderstood that Jesus was calling for Elijah, the prophet Elijah. And this is... This is a weird picture that they, he's hanging on his cross and, and maybe something's happening in their mind. It's like darkness just fell for three hours. Something weird's happening. So he's calling out for Elijah. Let's, let's see if something goes down right here. So some weird curiosity is happening. And so they offer Jesus sour wine to drink. And I want you to see this. This was a common beverage consumed by laborers and soldiers. It was cheap. And it was common because it relieved thirst more effectively than water. This was a refreshing, cheap drink in the Roman Empire. And so what this means for us, earlier in the crucifixion account, they brought Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. That was most likely a narcotic to numb Jesus' pain. And Jesus said, no, I'm not drinking it. He wanted to be fully conscious when He went to the cross to make atonement for our sins. So He refuses the drink that would numb him to consciousness and he accepts the drink that will make him fully conscious for as long as possible. He drinks the wine of refreshment and refuses the narcotic. And the point is this, that Jesus on His cross, He makes no shortcuts saving us. No shortcuts. No pain medication. And He's not going to starve to death or, or dehydrate on His cross. He's going to bear the full, the full penalty of the curse, the wrath of God. And this sour wine is the fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 69, verse 21. Listen to this. For my thirst, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so at this point, you have Jesus really forsaken on His cross. There's a real separation, a real abandonment. And now, in these three hours, the eternal Son is being cut off from the Father. And then He dies alone. He dies alone. Verse, four, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. So much glory is packed in not even ten words. You have the death of the God-man. The death of the Savior. 
If this bores you, you are blinded to the glory of Christ. Satan is at work in your life. When you can hear things about Jesus and you're bored, and if you're being really honest, you're just bored, not hitting you. You are blinded to the glory of Jesus and Satan is at work in your life. And the Word of God promises you that you are headed to destruction. God must open your eyes to the glory of Christ. If I were you, I would just say that. I would just pray that to God. God, open my eyes to the glory of Jesus. Don't let me go bored off a cliff into hell forever. Help me to hear this glorious gospel. I want you to see what Jesus says right before He dies. He utters a loud cry in verse 37. And we know, Ryan, Ryan painted this picture for us last week, that Jesus is crucified, holes in His wrist and His feet. And what this means is that if He were to scream anything from His cross, He would have to pull Himself up by the holes in His body. He would pull Himself up. And this is what happens here. Prior to His death, Jesus pulls Himself up by His pierced hands and His pierced feet. And I want you to get this picture in your soul. The Savior is in agony. In agony under the curse of God. And He summons all His remaining strength And the strong Son of God pulls Himself up, takes a big deep breath, and then screams something from His cross. Screams something from His cross. John, the Gospel of John tells us what Jesus said. After three hours of hellacious wrath, the eternal curse fallen on the Son of God, Jesus leans up, strong Savior, and He screams out, It is finished! It is finished. And you think about that. He's moments from death. And you would think the natural man said, he didn't say, I am finished. I am finished. This is not a dying man going out. He is accomplishing a work just moments before he dies. It is finished. He said it loudly. He screamed it from his cross publicly. And he wants us all to know That His substitutionary atonement is complete. It's not begun. It is finished. It's paid. The substitutionary atonement is paid. Our sin debt before God the Father is paid in full. It is finished. The Lamb has laid down His life. The ransom has been paid. Our sins have been born. Salvation has been accomplished forever. The covenant, the eternal covenant of God is now inaugurated. It's finished. That's what He wants you to know. Hanging on His cross. His last breath, He goes out. He wants us to know it is finished. What would it look like for you to feel this in your bones, to wake up every day and to preach to yourself, soul, it's finished on your behalf. Done before God the judge. I am saved. I am righteous in Christ Jesus. It's done. I'm not adding to my atonement. I have been saved by one who died by Himself on His cross. Cut off from God. It's finished. There's no more to be born. This is, the, this is the Son of God. And He has accomplished the work that He came in the world to do. Nothing can stop Him from fulfilling His mission, not even the curse of God. It is finished. It's finished. Nothing is to be added to His perfect work of atonement. Verse 37 tells us that the Savior is completely consumed by the curse of God. He breathes His last. Jesus' heart stopped beating. 
He took a final breath. His body became a cold, dead corpse. And Christ died for us. Christ died for us. When we, when we say that He suffered for us, when we say that He bled for us, we don't mean that He scratched Himself, bled a little bit. We mean that He gave it all. That He poured out His life and He is now a cold corpse that's on the way to, an, to a tomb. Jesus died under God's curse, completely consumed. His perfect holy life is now complete. He's done. Not I am finished, it is finished. That's what He said. And then Mark draws our attention to t- immediately, immediately, okay? When you would think that, you know, we go off licking our wounds because we've been defeated. Mark shows us two powerful effects of the death of Jesus immediately, immediately. Listen to verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The moment that he dies. The moment that he dies. The temple curtain, this was the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And God had demanded that this barrier be put up as a barrier between holy God and sinful man. To keep sinful man away from God's holy presence. God's blazing, beautiful, glorious presence. This was the veil. This was the barrier. History tells us that this was 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, several inches thick, 300 or so priests to install this. Huge barrier. Wanted to be a clear picture. Can't come into my presence, sinful humanity, apart from a sacrifice. This barrier had stood between sinful humanity and God for 15 centuries at this point. And the moment, the moment that Jesus breathes His last, it's ripped in two. It's ripped in two. And the picture here is this, that the, the true Passover has just happened, and now the picture is this, that this is the true Day of Atonement. Jesus, the true High Priest, has just walked into the holy place, and He has put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So I want you to catch this. There's two things here I want you to catch. It is ripped in two. Completely in two pieces. One before, ripped in two. And what that means is that this work that Jesus accomplishes, it is complete and irreversible. It's complete and irreversible. The old way is now abolished forever. And the sacrifice of Jesus on His cross, it ends the Mosaic covenant. It ends the ceremonial law forever. Forever it's done. These shadows that God had put in place under the law of Moses to point to Jesus, they have now served their purpose and they give way to the substance. And we no longer go back to the shadow. Why? Because Jesus is here. We don't need the shadows anymore. It's ripped in two. It has accomplished His purpose never to be returned to again. We try to run back to the ceremonial law of the law of Moses. It's like taking this curtain that's been ripped in half and trying to sew it back together. This work is irreversible. Jesus has accomplished. The second thing I want to be clear is that the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Top to bottom. 30 feet tall. Top to bottom. Picture there is clear that God the Father did this. That the moment that Jesus gives His life for our sins, this sacrifice is accepted by God. It is a perfect sacrifice accepted by God. How do we know? Because the moment, 
the moment that Jesus breathes His last, God reaches down His hands and rips access into His presence wide open. He accepts the sacrifice. And now this way into the Holy of Holies, the glorious presence of God, it is made available to to all nations, to every one of us through faith in the crucified Christ. Hebrews 10 speaks of this. This barrier was destroyed by the work of Christ. There is no more barrier between sinful humanity and holy God if sinful humanity approaches holy God through the crucified Christ. We have access to the holy of holies. The blazing holiness of God that angels hide their faces from. That Isaiah screams out, woe is me. We draw near to this God, this holy, holy, holy one. And we say, Father, in Christ Jesus we approach this holy God as Father. This is the immediate effect of the death of Jesus. And this is good news. A ripped curtain is good news for Gentiles like us. This way into God's presence, it's now been flung open to all nations on earth through faith in Christ crucified. And then, Mark shows us the first Gentile that walks through God's presence through faith in Jesus. This is the second effect of the death of Jesus in our passage. Listen to verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing Him saw that in this way He breathed His last, He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. I've been thinking about this for a month. And I've been thinking about how often, me personally and we corporately, how often we are tempted to downplay, to doubt the power of the Gospel, to downplay Christ crucified, the power of Christ crucified. And I want you to think about this. This centurion's confession comes hard against this unbelief in our life. And so the Holy Spirit has just told us the story of Christ crucified. And I want you to imagine this this question hanging in the air. Is this gospel boring? Is this gospel powerful? Can this gospel save? Can this gospel really call a, a people from all nations on earth? Is this gospel really effective? Will the death of Jesus accomplish what it's supposed to do? And before you even get the question out of your mouth, God saves a sinner at Calvary. We're introduced to this Roman centurion. He oversaw the death of Jesus. We don't know much about this man. We know he probably was a lifelong soldier, rose rose up the ranks of the Roman military, hardened man, familiar with death. Don't know much about him. We can assume those things. We do know that this man spends the final six hours with Jesus. And what that means is that this man, he saw the darkness fall in the middle of the day at noon. He saw it get dark for as far as you could see. And then he looked into the eyes of the Savior when the Savior cried out in agony of of being forsaken by God. He saw that. And then I want you to see this. Mark tells us that what convinces this man is neither one of those things. What convinces this centurion was something in the way that Jesus breathed His last breath. And what I want to point out there is that the death of Jesus is what convinced this man, not miracles. Miracles do not produce salvation. The glorious Gospel of Jesus is the power of God for salvation. There is nothing more powerful 
than to preach the gospel of Christ crucified. It's getting really popular today. Imported all over the world by Bethel in Northern California. Of miracles. We need miracles. That's what we really need. Miracles. Miracles didn't even save at Calvary. We need to preach the gospel of Christ crucified. Christ dying under the curse. It's sufficient to save sinners. This is the message that we have been charged by God to preach to all nations. Christ dying under the curse. This is what saves sinners. This is the only message that calls dead sinners to resurrection life in Christ. This is the power of God. The Gospel. The death of Jesus. Mark's Gospel began in chapter 1 with the sky being ripped wide open. You remember that? Mark chapter 1, the heavens were torn and God the Father said about Christ, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then this gospel draws to a near with a, draws to an end with this curtain being torn, and then this centurion confesses, truly this man is the Son of God. These are like the bookends of the Gospel of Mark. And this is the, this is the theme of Mark's gospel, that Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the true Son of God. This is the, this is the question that Mark presses on every one of us today, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God or do you not? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God dying under the curse of God on His cross or do you not? That's the central question. Understand this. Every Roman coin in Rome at this time would have been stamped with these words. Caesar Augustus, Son of God. Caesar Augustus, Son of God. And what this means is that this man served Caesar in the Roman military. And so with this confession, this man shifts his allegiance out from under Caesar and up under King Jesus. And he confesses that King Jesus is the true Son of God, not Caesar. And so what I want you to see here is that these are words of repentance and faith in Christ. What more could this, could this man have said at the cross than truly this man is the Son of God? God saved sinners at Calvary. And this is a powerful Gentile response to the death of Jesus. And I want you to think about that. This Roman centurion is only the beginning. And just not even a hundred years after this event, there is a church that worships Jesus in every major city in the Roman Empire. And you fast forward 2,000 years and King Jesus has redeemed a people for Himself out of almost innumerable people groups on the planet. This mission will soon be fulfilled in eternity when Jesus redeems a people out of every nation on the planet to Himself. He's only the beginning of the ones who would confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And He's going to be worshipped forever for what He did on this cross. I want you to listen to Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll... And open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
This is the anthem of the church for millions and millions of years that Christ died for me. Worthy are you, Lamb of God, laid down your life, bore the curse for me, died on the cross for me. This is the gospel that is simple enough for a seven-year-old child, five-year-old child to understand. But there's enough glory in this simple message for us to worship Christ for one billion times a million years. Jesus, there will never, think about this, let this cook your brain. There will never be a moment in all of eternity where Jesus is not worshipped for what He did on His cross. And we just say this, behold, John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold Him. Behold Him. This gospel is not weak. It's full of power to save all sinners that put their trust in Christ. It's full of power. This is the message that God has commanded us, Grace Community Church, to take to every corner of this earth. And we just say, Amen, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah to You, Lord Jesus. Nothing is too... Nothing is too big of a sacrifice in light of what You've done for us, Lord Jesus. We say amen to You, Lord. Lamb of God, died for us. Our, our application today is simply this. I just want to leave you with this thought as we close. You have just heard about the curse-bearing death of Christ Jesus. You just heard about that. And here's the response that we want to go after. Listen to Galatians 6, verse 14. Here's the response. Here's the application. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What would it look like for you to leave this place today and you to take your highest boast, your only boast, in Christ crucified? What would it look like in your daily life to glory in Christ the crucified Lamb on His cross? Let this mark your life on a daily basis. And I just encourage you, we're going to be worshiping Jesus for what He did on His cross for thousands and millions of years. So what would it look like for you to line up with eternity and you to worship Jesus for what He did on His cross day by day by day, for you to fight gospel coldness and for you to worship Christ? So here we have Him. On His cross, He is now dead. And I want to leave you with this phrase, Behold the Savior of the world, hanging like a cursed serpent on His cross. He is cut off from God the Father. And this means life to the world. Isaiah says, turn to Him and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And we say, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask You, God, first, we thank You, Lord. We thank You for opening our eyes to the measure that You've opened them, Lord, to, to the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. God, I pray for this church. I pray for myself, God, that You would help us to never move away from a first love for You, Lord. The moment, God, that the good news of the Gospel of forgiveness of sins hit our ears, Lord. Help us to never move away from that first love. God, help this love for You to deepen and mature. Purify it, Lord, from youthful zeal and from bad doctrine. <coughs> help us to know You rightly, Lord Jesus. God, I pray for all in this room. Holy Spirit, we pray, God, that You would confront us with Your words. 
We pray that You would drive Your Scriptures deep down in our souls, God, and that You would make Your Word do what You have appointed it to do. God, we ask for zeal. We ask for affections, appropriate affections for You, Lord Jesus. God, we ask that the, the idol among us, Lord, the downcast among us will be encouraged, Lord. Holy Spirit, we just pray that You would show us the glory of Christ. Satisfy us with Your steadfast love, Lord. God, I pray that You save sinners in this room. God, I pray that You wouldn't allow Satan to distract from the Gospel, to blind to the glory. God, I pray that You would arrest their attention even now. God, I pray that You'd make them concerned for their soul, Lord. God, take sleep from them. Take, take every comfort in this world from them, Lord, and drive them to their knees, God, in conviction and desperation for You, Lord. Do whatever You have to do to save souls, Lord. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we love You, and we thank You for what You've done. Amen.